Today on West Coast Radio, we welcome waterman Jordan Hansen to the program. Jordan crosses oceans by way of rowing. For the purposes of this interview, we'll focus on two of those ocean-crossing odysseys. The first, when Jordan, along with three other teammates, broke a Guinness World Record rowing from New York to England while literally starving. And the second, an almost completed row from Africa to Miami, where Jordan and his team ended up on Dateline. Many of the stories in this interview can be examined in detail by reading Jordan's book, Rowing into the Sun, Four Young Men Crossing the North Atlantic, available wherever you like to buy books online, and also by watching Dateline's special on Jordan, and that's called Capsized, which features the time he capsized just outside the Bermuda Triangle, rowing on that expedition from Africa to Miami. Jordan is the creator of the Tiny Boat Session Project, which, among other things, is an artist performing their art on a tiny boat. You have got to meet Jordan and hear all of his stories, I'm telling you. And you can do that while getting the best tour of Seattle available by checking out Jordan's Airbnb tour called Rowing Urban Waterways. And that's on the Airbnb website and app. Just look up Rowing Urban Waterways in Seattle. You've also got to read Jordan's book. It's seriously incredible, and it'll make you feel like you are on the boat with Jordan and his teammates as they cross the Atlantic from New York to England. It's a modern-day ocean odyssey, and if you want an autographed copy, make sure to go to www.jordanhansen.com, H-A-N-S-S-E-N.com. As usual, all links to where you can find out about Jordan, his Airbnb tour, his Dateline special, his book, his website, his social media, that's all located in the show's description and social media posts regarding this episode. Let's get right into it. This is West Coast Radio. What I was saying a little bit off the air is, and I think this is too rare, unfortunately, um, and it's hard to do this. It really is, but you've truly lived. I mean, you've lived a life true and whole, uh, and it's something that people are going to be telling stories about for years and years to come. And I just want to commend you on that because it's scary to go out and live a life that's truly, that's true life, you know? Yeah. I mean, I feel really lucky to have had the experiences that I've had. I mean, I, um, I don't know, the last few years, I definitely thought to myself like, yeah, you know, if I was to, if I was to die, I feel like, yeah, I've, I've, I've given it hell. Um, you know, I feel like I've, you know, in some ways I feel like I could have done more and I could have taken some different paths, but like, I'm really, I'm very happy with the types of things that I've been able to, to get done. There's this book. It's like, um, like a philosophy, like this Buddhist philosophy book I had to read in college. It's called the Dhammapada. Have you ever heard of that? Uh-uh. Well, it's really easily digestible, much more so than like a Western philosophy book. Like, um, um, who's that dude that a lot of people freak out over? Nietzsche. Mm, you know, yeah. People go through and yeah, like I can't understand a word he's fucking saying, but the Dhammapada, very easy. It's written in sing song form and it's easily digestible, but I think it's, it's very beautiful. And my favorite passage from the Dhammapada is that diligence is the path to lifelessness. And I understand lifelessness as being immortal. And I think that as I read your book and as I learn about who you are, you've you've been incredibly diligent and in doing that you're going to be remembered and that to me is one of the most important things ever you know are you going to be remembered is your story going to be carried on and are you going to be immortal you know in that sense and i think you've accomplished that goal yeah i had a you know when i got back from that first ocean row the four of us were uh sitting there with the the the, the liberty yacht club and there was this great big uh italian fella and um you know it's on the on the jersey side of uh of uh 
the New York Harbor. And he was just effusive, and he was just full of, of, of bigness and life. And he was just like, I'm, I'm so proud of you guys. Like, I just, my heart's bursting. And I, I just got to say, there's just like, there's got to be this thing. Uh, there's got to be one thing in every man's life that he did that another man would not do. Mm. And, <laughs> and it was just like, the guy was like straight out of The Sopranos. Uh, and his uh, like his his gestures and his effusiveness was just wonderful to experience. Uh, but I that that really made a uh, made an impression on me. And just kind of think about like yeah, like I think a, a big part of you know I, I felt the desire and I had you know the ability to be able to put this trip together with some really incredible people. Uh, and as I. Um, and, and I was able to do it like really early on, like just after college. And, uh, you know, since then it's like thinking like, well, and, and that's just something that I, I don't think that I figured out yet, but you know, like I, I ruminate a lot on, on what the value of an adventure is. And I think that's something that's a little bit of a moving target for me. But, um, I do think that that was, that was a way that he summed up a part of it. And I think it's just, uh, and, and this is like, he said, like, a, you know, doing one thing that, uh, you know, that another man would not do. But I think this, this goes to just all, all humans, no matter you know what your, what your gender is, is just, uh, is everybody needs like a, like a coming of age experience. And I think, uh, I liked the metaphor quality of roaming across the ocean. Um, and yeah, I just felt like that was a, um, just a beautiful way to, to, to sum up at least a, a portion of, of that idea as a, as a coming of age story is like doing something that, you know, other people have done as well. There's, there's, you know, there's quite a few, I think there's maybe 1500 or, or 2000 folks that have rode across the ocean. Um, but the idea of like doing something that, uh, another person would look at and be like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. And we all kind of need these different separate, uh, separations of things and, and being like, whatever that is. Uh, you know, I think military service is that for a lot of people. Um, there's just a whole lot of these things in, uh, you know, in, in our culture, but I think they're, I think they've been in our culture and in our, a wide variety of cultures. And I think that these days they're a little bit harder to, to figure out what that is. And those opportunities are both in the sense you, we have so many things at our fingertips, uh, but at the same time, we don't really have that, that structure for, uh, you know, these type of, of, of coming of age of events that are as regulated as they used to be. And you see kind of like bastardizations of that in, uh, you know, things like hazing, because that's ultimately like what, what someone's trying to do is they're trying to, to do sign of a, a, an intense experience to be able to, you know, separate like this is this is us. This is me. This is, uh, you know, our tribe. And um I think that I was seeking some kind of big experience like that. And that was the one that was really attracted to me because I saw this poster advertising this rowing race across the ocean, uh, just after, um, you know, spending four years of absolutely falling in love with a sport that was like the first sport that I felt like I had any, uh, natural inclination for. And that, had, that was, and that really, uh, just washed over me and, the idea of doing that on a on a much bigger level, uh, in a in a different kind of vessel, in a different kind of experience of like having to endure versus, uh, you know, more 
the the shorter but still incredibly painful bursts of uh, rowing races uh, that I did in college. Are people who, you know, whatever the equivalent this is, because it, you know, rowing across the ocean that could be something different for somebody else. You know, for me, it could. You know, it was it, it was a marathon for well, it's not even. A marathon's not as hard as what you did, but you get the point. But people, everybody has their own grand adventure that they seek out. Um, but not everybody goes after it. Not everybody does what that East Coast dude said, you know, did something that another person can't do. And I'm wondering, do you think that people who set out to do the things that you've done, you know, those grand adventures, um, do you think they're born or do you think they're made? I think it's a little bit of both, but I'm, I'm 10 to 1 to have, uh, you know, foot in, in both those camps. And I think it's not necessarily that that uh, what he said what 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 stood out with what he said is uh, what another person wouldn't do, mm-hmm. and not, you know whether they whether they could or, or couldn't. It was just it was uh, because can't implies that there wasn't a choice. Because I think a lot of people, uh, you know, have the wherewithal and and, and ability. It's just uh, having that that desire uh, to be able to to make that happen. You know, I think that there's a uh, we're, you know, not every, uh, I, the, this guy, Adam Creek, he's a, uh, I rode across the ocean the second time with him. He's a Canadian gold medalist and he, uh, he does a bunch of speaking as well. Um, and he, uh, one thing he was talking about was like, he was in some kind of, uh, he was doing some kind of talk and he was talking about how like he's, he wouldn't, he'd never, his physiology would never make him able to be a, uh, a gymnast. He's just, he's just too big. There's too much, uh, length and frame on him to be able to, to move a body in that way. I'm sure that if he applied himself over years, he'd probably be, you know, one hell of an acrobat, but you know, never, you know, he just doesn't have those proportions. So that's kind of out of his reach. And that's true of all everybody, like everybody has their, uh, their assets and their, and their deficits. But, uh, within all of those things, there's, we're so much more capable uh, than I think we think we are. And that's something that, you know, I, I still try to hold on to. And sometimes I feel like I, I lose sight of, and I, you know, just cause I did those things doesn't mean that I don't question myself a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, but I think it does help have a chance to, you know, be able to have a, a certain centering of self. My, my dad who met me, uh, you know, my whole family, all of our families were, were sitting on the dock when we were, arrived in Falmouth, England. And one of the first things he said to me, he said, you know, you have something that uh, no one can ever take away from you. And that was another interesting thing that it's taken me a long time to, to figure out uh, just how powerful those uh, few words are. And I think that, uh, I mean, having a yeah, again, it goes back to having that that story uh, and those experiences. And when you can't have them early on, then you kind of have a chance to be able to um, to grow with them and grow with those lessons. Because I think that I, you know, there's lessons from, you know, those experiences, both of them. But I think especially the first one, just because I was so young, uh, that I've really been able to evolve with over the years. And that's been a pretty uh, wonderful gift. Uh, as I've, as my relationship with that experience, uh, uh, evolves. I really do feel, I think a lot about, uh, I, I never wanted kids or anything. And I never thought I knew ever grew, I never grew up thinking about, Oh, I want a family or anything like that. Uh, and 
I think as a consequence, you, you spend a lot of time thinking about what the point is. What am I doing here? And um, as I get older, I, I do believe that that's the point. The point is like what your dad said, it, just collect as many moments that they can't take away from you as possible. Those beautiful, tremendous moments. You know, I think that's a big slice of the pie to what this whole point is. You know, the, those moments that they can't take from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I, I totally agree. And I, and I, uh, I agree. Like I haven't had the desire to, uh, to have kids either. And, um, but you know, my two of the other guys that I rode across the ocean with the first time, like they, uh, both have kids. And, um, uh, one of the guys that, uh, rode across the ocean that is Adam, he's got several kids and that's, uh, you know, they're also the, those are, you know, that it's, it's a similar kind of intense experience. Uh, you know, and that's just something that, you know, a lot of people really feel that, that desire, but when you don't, um, and it hasn't happened, you know, by, by accident <laughs> that, uh, yeah, you spend a lot of time thinking, okay, like, so what is the, <laughs> what does all this mean? Why am I here? Uh, and, uh, yes, I, I, I agree. Very quickly, because these questions don't have really any place in the narrative of the interview, but I did want to ask anyway, because I have an interest in it, uh, Mermaids, sea monsters, or Humboldt squid? Any encounters with any of those things? Uh, well, I um, <laughs> I have a so when I was <laughs> mermaid, sea monsters, Humboldt squid. I haven't I haven't seen any Humboldt squid, but some flying squid flew into the boat one day, and uh, so there's these these flying squid out there uh, that can fly like a hundred meters, and you should look up pictures of these things because they're incredible. They have these um, you know on their mantle they have uh, the the little fins that when they fly they turn into wings and then they spread out their uh, tentacles into another set of wings as they shoot like arrows like over a hundred uh, over a hundred yards. Um, whereas like these flying fish they can they can travel over the waves uh, up to four hundred. And so, I mean, that is just such a wild thing. And flying fish is something that people think of, but I, I, I didn't know flying squid were a thing until they landed on the deck of the boat. Uh, and I decided to eat one and it was really delicious. <laughs> you ate it raw? No, I didn't eat it raw. No, we, uh, we had a little, we had these little jet boils and, uh, threw it in there with, um, well, so they, they, they ended up in the, in the little footwell. So there was some water and just seeing how much ink they could, they could make turn this little footwell that probably had about you know, 10 gallons of water. Cause it was a, it was a wavy day. So this thing would just fill up and we have to pump it out. So if it was wavy for several days, we just wouldn't bother with it. Um, until it was, uh, until it was a lot, a lot calmer, but they hopped in that water there and they just turned it completely black. So we pumped it out, uh, got a hold of them, uh, dispatched them, chopped them up and, uh, turned them into little calamari, fried it in the, uh, fried it up, uh, with a little bit of, uh, what was that? Um, coconut oil. And they were delicious. I mean, something that you eat like right off the bat. I mean, it doesn't really get much better than that. Oh my God. So you're telling me they, they fly a hundred yards, a football field. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's bananas. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. I mean, it's still just something that I'm, I'm thrilled that I had the chance to, to see in person because it's just, like something that you, I mean, I think this is the thing that I like that, that I treasure so much from these experiences is that, you know, I think I remember uh, reading somewhere that um, 
by the time you're 17, you've pretty much, much experienced every single human emotion. And we were all in our, in our, it was this, I did these experiences in my, you know, early twenties and then uh, early thirties. And there were these moments on this where I saw things and experienced things that I didn't even know existed. And the flying squid were, were one of those, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I knew there were plenty of squid in the sea, but not flying squid and not and not that they could fly so incredibly well do you ever when you're out there in the ocean and you're going and you just you know thousands of miles of journey and do you did you ever think about the ancient hawaiian or not the ancient hawaiians but the polynesians who got on those canoes or whatever and found their way to hawaii you know uh, that's what i was thinking about when i was reading your book a little bit because uh, you know, now there's technology and there's planning that's been done over hundreds and hundreds of years and all this stuff. Um, but back then it feels like they, I mean, I don't know what technology they had. I'm sure, I'm sure they were the greatest navigators ever, but it's just incredible to me what the Polynesians were able to do, uh, with limited technology. Oh yeah. I think that, uh, I mean, I think that it's, I think number one, I think their technology was probably, uh, a lot better than we, than we think. Uh, but number two, I think that, you know, they, they didn't have the option of GPS. They didn't have the option of, of all of these things. And because they, you know, they're, they didn't have the distractions of the modern world. We've, we've created a whole lot of incredible toys for ourselves. And some of them are incredibly useful. Some of them are absolute time wasters. And sometimes they're in the same thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but when you're out there and you're uh, like, 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 being in a place like that where you are experiencing it and paying attention to it all the time uh, over generations and passing that knowledge on, then and that's the thing that really blows me away is that the, how they were able to read waves and read clouds and read the animals. They had a much uh, better understanding of these things that, you know, when you and I go and, and, and look at the sea, you know, we, we, see, we see what they saw but they're interpreting it with just uh, a vastly different depth of understanding. Um, and you know, that's how they were able to, to, to sail these remarkable craft uh, across the sea. Uh, and so, whereas, you know, we're in a, you know, we're in a fiberglass, boat, we got a, we got a, a personal locator beacon. Uh, we got a water maker, we have dehydrated food, you know, we have all of these things. Um, I mean, it really, it, it's, it's, they're, they're almost incomparable experiences, but there were these moments where, you know, after I'd spent, you know, I, I spent, uh, you know, a fair amount of time at sea, uh, that, that first trip. And then the second trip, I, I kind of started to have this realization of being able to feel, uh, the wind and the waves and their interaction with current, just a lot more nuanced than, uh, you know, then I, I, I realized that, that there had been things that I learned on that first trip, just how the sea was and how it acted that I had forgotten and that came back to me very, very quickly. Uh, but it was just because we spent a lot of time out there looking at the sea. And even if you don't think you're observing these things, uh, you know, stroke after stroke, spending all this time at sea, you start to pick up uh, a lot more nuance. And if you couldn't rely on all of those other incredible uh, gifts of the tools that we have um, that we would, we would have paid attention probably on an e even deeper level. And 
there's something there's something gained with the ease of 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 gps and the knowledge of all these maps but then there's there's something lost uh, as well just that uh you know not being in a position to you know build that level of intimacy uh with the sea that was just that was just a like that was that was the requirement <laughs> going into those things if you're you know if you're uh in you know if you're sitting in 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 on the shore of Asia and you're looking out in the Pacific Ocean and thinking oh you know we're going to go find some things out there like you know they they had to figure it out one thing that really stuck out to me i i, I try my best to relate running endurance to what you did just so i can try to have some type of empathy for the bodily struggles that you and your team went through I'm wondering, you know, stomach issues are mentioned a lot, and of course they are. I can't imagine how they would be. They are, even if you run 26 miles, you're going to have real stomach issues that you have to battle. That's most of the actual battle in and of itself. So I'm, I'm wondering, number one, do you know um, if cannabis would be helpful? Because I know it helps a regular person's stomach to calm down a lot of people. Do you think the cannabis uh, bringing like THC pills or something like that would help more than Dramamine, or is it just a matter of – when you shake like that, your stomach's going to be fucked up. You know, I, like, I think it's one of those things that it's, it's probably it's each person's got a little bit different chemistry. Uh, and, you know, I know for like, for me, what, what I have eventually come to is that I got about 12 hours on deck of a boat where I can do pretty much anything. Uh, and then I start to get sick and then I need, I need to, I need to vomit really as quickly as possible because the sooner I can do that. And then if I have time to take a little bit of a nap after that, then for the most part, I'm like, I'm feeling pretty good and pretty normal. Kind of the sooner I get to that vomiting part, the sooner I can get on with my life. Uh, and the drama me never really made me feel, uh, too terribly wonderful. Um, but yeah, it's different from each person. We uh, we went around Vancouver Island, and I had a one of my uh, my buddies who was on the boat at the time. He uh, he tried it because he had some really bad seasick, and he just kind of you know kind of had a little bit of uh, success with it, but not a whole lot. Um, but really, I think it's person person to person. It's such a it, I think how you deal with seasickness is, is a very personal thing. Did the sleep cabin smell bad after a while? Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Oh man! <laughs> like I would, you know, that's yeah. the thing is that it, yeah, I could smell bad, but it it got to a point where it's like, well, it's really hard for it to get any worse than this, <laughs> and then you just get used to it. And the other part is that you know it's it's venting pretty regularly, uh, and so and like the smells in there, you just kind of get used to them because they're not really changing. And um, yeah, it's uh you know, every once in a while we just, you know, pull up all the cushions and clean things up and you kind of realize like, and this is just totally gross. So if people are eating, I'm sorry. Like, you know, you're on a boat and especially in the North Atlantic when we couldn't, it was just kind of too cold to, 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 to shower as much as you want. Just like the, the shedding of the skin and the hair and then <laughs> coming down <laughs> in between the cushions. Cause we had these like these uh, half inch, uh, not half inch, these inch and a half cushions uh, that kind of, pieced together like a puzzle. And then in between those things, we'd pull these things up. And fortunately, everything was just very easy to clean, but it was like, it was just disgusting. Oh my God. <laughs> I, had, I, like, I, had, I had thought about that in a long time. <laughs> you know, that begs the question. And for everybody listening at home, you know, this is, I don't think this is a sexist question. I always have to be, I always have to have that in the back of my mind, you know. Um, I, I don't want to upset anybody, but I do want to ask, 
Is this something that it's probably better generally just because of things like hygiene and health requirements, things like that? Is it usually maybe a better idea or easier logistically if it's all men or all women? Like if, if you try to mix and match, does, do you think that the, the end goal would be tougher to achieve? No, um, I, I, I think that there could be crews that wouldn't jive. Um, mm-hmm. and just because they're, you know, they're human, that there could be, uh, there can absolutely be a lot of crews where, you know, those issues would come up. Um, but there's plenty of crews, uh, that could be mixed gender that wouldn't have those issues at all and might even function better, um, as a team. Um, and I think that, uh, I mean, that is something that I've, um, you know, like I, I, I kind of, it, I went with people that I um, had kind of encountered in my life and they ended up being, um, you know, two groups of, of four men apiece. Uh, but I think that, you know, I, I know so many uh, incredible female ocean rowers uh, and that there are some mixed crews out there that have had, that have had some, uh, some really good success out there. And yeah, and I'm sure that there's, um, you know, there have been, uh, some dramas on there, but the fact is, is that like, <laughs> if you're getting, if you're getting, if you're getting in a boat with people to row across the ocean, you better be sure that they're all some fucking adults. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and on top of that, like if those kinds of issues are, uh, are coming up, it's like, that's, that's something that needs to be sorted out beforehand. And there's just as much, I mean, like there's a, there was a lot of drama on, on, on our boat on that, on that first one. And that was just, a, that was a bunch of, <laughs> that was a bunch of dudes. With me, the only thing that they got me was, um, it's easier for me to tell Jordan, I got a fucking shit in this bucket really bad than it is for me to tell Stacy. It's just harder for me to like shit, like in the vicinity of a female, you know, hard to shit in front of Stacy. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that again, that's the thing is that that's, um, being upfront and, and Frank with, uh, these, cause so I ended up, um, I did a trip down the, uh, Mississippi river with, um, they were, uh, uh, some, st- uh, they were, they just graduated, uh, over the previous few years. This is like the, the what ended up being the last iteration of Or Northwest was, uh, this second trip down the Mississippi river. Uh, and it set it up so that these students from the University of Puget Sound took these classes and then they graduated. And then uh, it was like a post-grad project going down the river, um, reaching out to students uh, along the way, doing presentations, collecting uh, water samples. Um, I mean, it's not for people on the same boat, but it was a it was a mixed crew and it was just it was no dramas like th- there were there were. There was no, there was no thing on, there was no thing that we had to surmount that wouldn't have happened uh, that I couldn't foresee happening between uh, a group of, of any genders in any mixture. Um, but in terms of like, just straight up, like, and, and I, and I bring this up cause it's, I mean, even though there was the option of, you know, going up into the woods and doing your business, like there was a lot of, uh, you know, like Frank, discussions about that and you know when i think when humans especially if you're going to decide to do something like this it's like well where are you going to poop like well we got where else we got to poop in this bucket so it's like well there's not uh, and there could be some crews out there where you know they they got to figure out a more modest way to do that uh but for the most part i mean everybody poops what is worse is it having diarrhea out there or constipation you know, we, I, I did not experience, uh, diarrhea. And so I, I was fortunate enough to not experience that, but I definitely experienced constipation. So I can't say to that, although 
uh, going down the Mississippi River, I experienced Jardia. And with Jardia comes a great deal of the most noxious diarrhea that um, I have yet experienced. It's like sulfur, eggs, and chilies. Mississippi mud. Uh, yeah, it is. It was. It was horrible. Uh, and it just and it burns. Uh, and there's a malaise that goes along with it. And <laughs> so I don't know. Um, seeing how bad the constipation got with Greg, uh, it like. And, and we all had it pretty bad, but like Greg was just decided to really get the the gold medal on that. Um, I think, God, I guess maybe if I had to choose between constipation and diarrhea on an ocean rowboat, assuming that neither one of those would actually kill me, like they could, I'd probably choose diarrhea. Maybe I don't know. Depends on how long it lasts. There, there's so many variables. <laughs> that's so interesting to me because that was I did I was a little bit surprised by the amount of concern that I read about Greg having the constipation and I, like why is it so serious cuz uh well it's it's serious just because you're in a space you're in a space where you can't um i mean eventually like so the, the the doctor like we we were when this became an issue it got to the point where Greg couldn't row and so if it has if it's if anything out that happens to the human body on there. It gets to the point where someone can't row, they can't function. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that's really serious. And so, you know, we were, you know, because of that, it's like talking to, we, we, again, because we were doing this in 2006 when we had a satellite phone, we could talk to a doctor and it's like, if this goes on long enough, uh, like this could turn into something that is, uh, could get complicated very quickly if he doesn't, if he's not able to, to pass this thing. And it, basically it could have ended the trip. Uh, cause I mean, it wasn't worth anybody's life. And if Greg was, uh, you know, in a position where he couldn't get better, then we, you know, we would have pulled our, um, we would have, we would have called for help. Um, and so, you know, you don't want it to get to that point. Uh, there's, uh, you know, and we didn't want to, uh, like, I think that's like 30 days is like the longest someone can be constipated, but I might be just pulling that out of my ass. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it can definitely, it can get serious and people can, you know, you get enough stuff in there and it can, you know, bust out your, your intestines. And then you got a whole other set of problems on your hand. Um, and so, yeah, like, I think it, it just, again, Greg's an incredibly strong person. I'd say he was the strongest rower on that boat. And when he wasn't able to row, it's a big fucking deal. And like, and it was, and it was, I mean, we're all young. Uh, where I'll feel really fit. Like no one's ever really experienced constipation that they can remember. So like at first it's kind of funny. And then we realized like, Oh, actually like the, this is, it gets somber real quick. Cause I mean, we're, we're just away from places to get help. Even if it had gone a little bit longer, uh, you know, and we decided, Oh, we got to get Greg off this boat. You know, that might've been several days. What does that look like? So if you're, let just well, you know, say exactly at the halfway point in between New York and your destination in England, and you've got to call for help. What does that rescue look like? Is it a freighter? Very likely. So, uh, I mean, and I know this pretty well because that's what happened on the second trip. <laughs> but not quite at the halfway point. We made it a solid 70, 73 to 75% of the way. Uh, and yeah, and that was because of capsize, not because of constipation. But like, say you're in the middle of the ocean, uh, so you're you're too you're way too far for a helicopter to come pick you up. Uh, what's going to happen is, let's say you know, like we were, we had a 
an EPIRB, which is an emergency position indicating radio beacon. And we, and we also, you know, we also had a satellite phone as well. So, uh, but by that point of the trip, it was starting to, you know, not be very consistent. So if we didn't have a, if we didn't have a satellite phone, but we had that, that EPIRB, then we would have, um, turn that on and basically just ask for, you know, that, that's just basically sending up a little beacon saying, Hey, we need help. Um, and you don't have a lot of options to, uh, I think there's four options you can say of like either, you know, it's a, it's a disaster. We need you to come right now. Or like, Hey, like no one's in immediate threat of death. Uh, but what would happen is a, uh, an aircraft. So if you're in the North Atlantic, for example, you're in a pretty darn good place to, um, to experience a disaster because the coast guards of the U S Canada, Iceland, France, Spain, and England are all really good coast guards. Uh, so, uh, a airplane is going to come out and spot you. And then what else is going to go out is, is in the North Atlantic there, there was probably a ship for the most part, always within 24 to 72 hours away from us because there's just so much traffic going across the ocean at that point. Um, and so they would have come and they would have uh, picked us up. Uh, they might've been able to pull the boat on board, maybe not. Um, and we would have been able to, and then, you know, uh, depending on how bad someone's wound was or how, how sick they were, they, they'd steam as fast as they could and then it like, again, depending on just how bad it was, uh, they might send a helicopter as soon as they were able to do that and take someone directly to a hospital. Um, but, you know, and, and if you didn't have a uh, PLB, if you're just going back with, you know, 100 years, um, then you could you could throw up a flare. And being in the if you were in the same place, uh, there are a lot of I mean, it's it's a well, it's been a well trafficked area for, you know close to 400 years. So, uh, you know, in terms of, of that particular spot, you'd have, you would have a good chance of finding of someone, of someone seeing that, but that's what that would look like. And I would say that on the first major journey and which by the way, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say you and your team broke the record for, um, the fastest time going from New York to that destination in, in England. And well, we, 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 we weren't the fastest, <laughs> but oh, my we, bad. Yeah, no, that's okay. No, but yeah, we, we won the race. Uh, I don't want anybody else to be hearing this thing because I'm cl- claiming things. Yes. The <laughs> there was no record in there somewhere. No, no there was a record. Uh, so we got a, our, our Guinness record is for that. We were the first boat to go from mainland USA to mainland UK without assistance. Oh, okay. Okay. And so that's, that's the Guinness record we got and did. It was like 71 and days and change. And the, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, there've been, you know, there, there've been faster boats that have done it, uh, since then. And the first two guys to do it, uh, didn't make it all the way to England. They made it to the Scilly Isles, which is an ar- archipelago about, uh, 50 nautical miles away from, uh, from Land's End over in England. So those guys did it in 1896 and I'm sure they probably could have rode that extra 50 miles and gotten it. It's just that this one was on the table and this is the one that we got. <laughs> Gotcha. And, Certainly. And I'm super, like, I'm super proud of it, but it is, you know, I think it's important and I'm to, 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 to balance it with a grain of salt. I mean, like pretty stoked that I got that record, especially like, and especially at 23, it was really great. Um, 
but it is something that I think is uh, li- like all these things. It's uh, it's important to to do it with a grain of salt. Spoken like a true sportsman, no doubt. Uh, I do want to focus on one scene that took place there because if anything would have taken y'all out on that first race, it would have been starvation. And um, there was a mishap where his name is Brad, correct? Mm-hmm. Where so Brad was in charge of packing the food, and there there was some issues with that because I think one of the might have been Greg's parents. They were saying, "Hey, there needs to be more care in the food collection situation that's going on," and Brad did not take care of that properly. And in, in the middle or at some point well into the race, he tells you in this dramatic moment, I didn't fucking pack enough food. And, and you, you have to process that and everything. And you talk about how hungry you got. And my grandma, she grew up during the Korean war and she almost starved to death. She was on the brink of starving to death for years. And the reason I bring that up is because she, that feeling of hunger, real hunger, stuck with her so much that now she cannot get hungry. If she gets hungry, she goes, for lack of a better word, it's crazy. She ha- I mean, she has to get food because she's panicking and she goes back to that mindset of war. And I know it's a little bit different uh, because you know, you're know you not in a war mindset and you know that you're probably not going to starve to death. But at the same time, you're starving. The four of you lost over 120 something pounds. And I, I, how do you not kill that dude that <laughs> fucked up? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, I think so <laughs> we, I think if it's probably closer to 150 between the four of us. Mm-hmm. And so like when it came to like the way that this, uh, mistake happened is that uh, one thing that we were really good at uh, that I really admired is that we, one person's was mistake was was everybody's mistake and that's how we functioned and i think that's how we did a, did a good job and i think like going into that you know in terms of like you know what that looked like is that you know if someone messed up we'd close ranks we all took responsibility for it and you know that was just something where there were a lot of there were a lot of factors going on into you know how this happened like this was like a, a this was a slow motion uh accident over a period of um you know months that we you know I mean, in hindsight is very clear, but, you know, while you're in the thick of it is you know, not clear at all, but, you know, there uh, were, you know, we, we had all this work to get done in this br- really a relatively brief amount of time. And we had no idea what the hell we were doing. Um, and so everybody ended up, you know, you know, doing jobs and Brad's a good organizer. And so he was, and at the time, like Brad is now probably one of the handiest people, uh, you know, between the, uh, the, between the four of us. But at the time, um, he wasn't having as much success in the boatyard and he was, uh, Brad could just like, <laughs> he would, you'd, you'd never see him like get the work done. And then this, uh, he'd come up with like the, the, the results and they were great. And so he's a good organizer. He, yeah, he takes on the food job and he just, you know, dives right into it. And at the same time, like they're, you know, kind of right from the get go when Brad and Greg moved into the house together, they lived across the hall from each other. And there was just this level of antagonism that uh, just kind of got, you know, you know, it just got challenging. And so um, and I think that that ended up spilling out into, you know, the. uh, relationship between uh, Brad and, and and Greg's dad as well, and it was one of those things where I mean, I was 
I was the captain. So like I should have been keeping an eye on this, but at the same time, everybody's just stretched so thin uh, that it was like, you know, Hey, I, I got my projects. I'm getting my things done. You know uh, like, cause the, the day the food was getting packed, I was finishing up sh- stuff on the boat in the shop. And the three other guys were over on Bainbridge with Greg's parents who had, you know, incredibly, you know, generous use of their space and some people to help pack the food. And at the end of that, I mean, Brad's dad was, was very, uh, was, um, remarked to Greg, uh, that he was impressed with what Brad had, had, had pulled off. Um, but Brad was the most intimately involved with the food. And so, um, again, everybody had different jobs and he was, uh, we were all, you know, Brad said, Hey, this is all the food we have. And we'd all agreed that this was going to be all the food we had. Uh, or like what those calories were. But if you haven't put together a big, you know, expedition project like this, looking at a big pile of food, it's hard to tell just how long that's going to last. And Brad was really the only person who, you know, after he loaded all in, in there and we ended up leaving, that's when he realized like, hey, I don't think like at the rate that we're eating through this, we don't have enough. And he knew better than anybody. And so on when he finally realized that, which was on day 16, uh, you know, he like it took him took him like three days to like kind of realize just what the hell had gone on. And uh, he told as soon as he kind of had the had the wherewithal to be able to do that. And that was good because we were able to I mean, there was absolutely a lot of anger on that boat. But because he didn't hold on to that, we were able to deal with it as soon as possible. And what that looked like was being able to ration that food in the way that we did. Um, and it was, uh, it was an, uh, I was going to say it was an ugly experience, but like the, the hunger is very ugly, but, uh, like, especially in hindsight, like I just, and because we were all so young, this just really like, I mean, it makes me make, it's a, it's a proud moment for me the way people held their tongues and treated each other like adults and worked through a problem that was really, really serious. Uh, and that didn't mean that people fell. Like there were times where I was a total, like I had this moment, you know, right when Brad told me, I was like, Oh man, Greg is just going to absolutely rip, uh, Brad apart. And, and Dylan, you know, he's, he's Zen most of the time, but like, you know, he's, you know, I, I wasn't sure just how he was going to, uh, uh, to react. And I was like, if I like, if the three of us just gang up on Brad, like that's not only that just, that's unfair. Uh, but it's also like, that's not productive at all. Like, so I remember kind of consciously trying to be like, okay, like I, I gotta, <laughs> I really gotta be team leader here. Um, and, you know, Greg uh, acted way uh, less ragey. Than I thought he would. And Dylan, you know, he blew up real quick and then he got pretty mellow and, and people would go back and forth, but because I hadn't really expressed my, my anger, it built up over a period of weeks. And, so one morning, Brad and I are sitting there rowing together and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a great, it's a great morning, like a little bit rough, but a little bit rough in the right direction. Um, and for the most part, Brad had been really, you know, quiet after this, like trying to, you know, you know, take up as, you know, little space and to, and to do all of these little silent things as, as much as he could to kind of, you know, I, I, I would say like maybe a tone, but also just to keep things moving along, um, in, in the, in any way that he could. Uh, and one day, uh, this particular morning, like he was, <laughs> he was usually pretty quiet. And this one morning he was really chatty and he, and I was just feeling exceptionally hungry. 
and I just, uh, he was rowing in front of me. I was rowing in, in the bow seat. So I was looking at the back of his head and I was like, look, Brad, I, I, I just can't talk to you in the morning. Like I'm just, I, I just can't. And he was silent and just kind of had twisted a little bit to the side as he kind of thought about that. Rode for a few more strokes and, you know, we're making good time. And, and I said, uh, I said, and by the way, Brad, <laughs> while, while we're talking, everybody on this trip fucked up, <laughs> but you fucked up the worst. <laughs> Brad, like while we're doing this, like you can feel like, so Brad and I, we'd rode for uh, this point four years together. So, you know, our, while we're doing this, our strokes are matched up perfectly and you can just start to feel like the oars start to bend because like we're taking all this rage and like, we don't have energy to burn. Like this boat does not move that much faster. Like it really responds well to a solid medium effort, (laughs) like 60 to 70% of the energy is going to get you like 85% of the speed. So we're sitting there and we're just, we're needlessly just throwing energy away at this point. And he's like, Jordan, that's not fair. And I said, I know, and I don't care. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it was just, it was, it went back to some silent rowing as, <laughs> as you might imagine we would after an experience like that. And, <laughs> and I thought about it later and I was like, I just, that was, I needed to get through that moment to be able to get to the next part, which I think is, uh, was really the the most powerful for me, uh, was I had to really think to myself, like, is this, is this worth giving up a friendship? Like (laughs) I I asked Brad was, uh, you know, I asked Greg first, but then I asked Brad second, Brad was the guy that said yes first. And so without him, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been even at this point without that. And if there's one thing you have when you're rowing across the ocean, it's just a lot of time to think uh, about um, just a lot of time to think about things like, is this silly, ridiculous act of rowing across the ocean? Uh, is it worth losing a friendship? And you got time to think about that to the metronome of the oars. And I just remember like, coming to the conclusion that like it wasn't. And I, I was like, and I, (laughs) we like, we rotated every four days. And so it took me maybe what felt like weeks, but could have been days. I'm not sure. Um, to come to this moment where, uh, I was like, okay, like I'm, I've decided I'm going to forget Brad. (laughs) And even that felt good. Just deciding it didn't even say it to him. But then finally, the next time we were rowing, I was just sitting there after like we'd been rained on and we're in the back cabin. And I was just like, Brad, I got to say something to you. And I was like, like, no matter how this finishes, like I, I, I forgive you and I got to do it before before success is guaranteed. Because for me, like it had to be before that moment because it wouldn't have meant as much to me. And like, I just started fucking bawling. <laughs> Sure. I had this awkward hug, like laying down in the cabin <laughs> in in the rain gear. <laughs> it was soaked. And it was this cathartic thing. And I realized like how heavy rage is. And I got up and I just like, I was so fucking ready to row. And I was just as hungry. But like <laughs> the rage was just is not an emotion that I 
know how to use well. I like it doesn't make me stronger. It doesn't make me tougher. It weighs me down. Um, it makes me unhappy, and I I work better with joy. And uh, you know, were times that it didn't mean that I wasn't angry at Brad. Uh, again, or that he was, you know, it's a two way street. That he was uh, uh, angry with me, but it was a lot lighter after that, and it was something that I needed to do uh, in order to get across the sea. It's it's an insanely beautiful story to me of what it means to separate yourself as a human from an animal. You know, pure hunger is taking over, but you all, you guys still found a way to forgive. And uh, I mean, for me, it's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful moment. It really is a beautiful moment, but we must move on from the beautiful moment. I want to talk about the next excursion, the next expedition. And that is when um, it was the attempted trip from Africa to Miami. And um, that story was told excellently on Dateline. And anybody can Google it, Dateline capsize. It's a six-part uh, story, and it's really excellent. What I want to focus on, though, is what is that experience like being on Dateline? I mean, that's true, big, that's legit media. Um, the guy, I don't know how you didn't laugh. Did you laugh? Because he he talks like that. Oh, yeah, what did yeah, you think? Oh, yeah. uh, he's, a, he's a hoot. Yeah, no, it's um, – it's a really interesting experience. Just a real, a real quick postscript to, uh, to that last trip though. Um, if, if that's okay. Absolutely. <laughs> um, sure. Sure. Yeah. So like, anyway, um, uh, Brad and I are still friends. Dylan and I are still friends. Greg and I are still friends and Greg and Brad have become good friends and now like have been become ultra running buddies. And I just think that's, uh, and that's been this sort of thing where, so Brad lives in Montecito, California and, um, he, uh, when he decided to, to get married, um, you know, he was just, he was talking to me and he was like, you know, I want to make sure that Greg comes here. Uh, and he did. And it was the, you know, the, the, I think the last time the four, all four of us were together, like we haven't been able to get all four of us together, you know, since then, but there's been combinations of three here and there. Um, and that was, and that was a cool experience to be in with, but what be, what was, what was cooler and it sucks because it's kind of on the tail end of a tragedy is that Brad's house almost got destroyed in a mudslide. And, uh, as soon as people that didn't live there could go in, like, uh, Greg and I were able to, to come there and it was like, you know, me and Greg were able to, <laughs> to, to be the first people there to help him start digging out. And since then they've just grown into this, uh, <laughs> a very what uh an unlikely friendship considering everything um that happened out there but having gone through and looked at the uh you know all the inter- like i i had all the interviews from the uh uh so the book has all the stuff that's um uh that's dialogue is uh ripped from these interviews uh that were that were filmed before during and after and I could see these moments uh, with both of them that kind of like seemed to, to hint at things towards the future. Um, and so I guess I'm not surprised that their relationship has changed, but it, it just is, as easily as easily could have been, you know, something that's not nearly as endearing. And I'm just really thankful to be a, uh, you know, to be on the sidelines with that because both those guys, all three of them are just so near and dear to me. I love them to death. And um, it's just, yeah, I feel lucky that they're still in my life. No doubt. I mean, there's really nothing else I could add to it. It's, uh, you know, when you go through an adventure like that, 
at some, it, you know, y'all you, are going to be part of each other's lives somehow, some way. And also, when you really don't like somebody, the great comedian, late comedian Patrice O'Neill said this, and it always stuck with me. I think when you really don't like somebody, that just means you have a lot of emotion for them. So I think it's it's easy to just kind of influence that in a different direction when things get better. You get a little food in your stomach. Um, that that intense emotion can go into friendship emotion, I think. Um, so it doesn't surprise me too much considering what they went through. The ocean almost never gives back what it claims. But then there are these images. It's amazing that this video exists at all, having once been lost to the capricious will of the sea. And yet, here it is, to tell frame by frame its harrowing story of the four young men who imagined they could best the wind and the waves and the unpredictable elements, across the Atlantic, all the way, in a rowboat. There was Jordan, the captain, Adam, the Olympic gold medal winner, Marcus, the adventurer, and Patrick, the rookie ocean rower. And this video can only tell their story because it was retrieved after what happened to them from the very ocean waters they had the audacity to explore. But the Dateline experience, um, I'm interested. What is that like? You know, it's uh, it's interesting because it's, uh, I mean, there's, I mean, they've been around at this point, what, 25, 30 years? Like, it's funny to see, think of something that's, uh, you know, a TV show that's been around generations. Um, and so I guess I say that because like they, they got really dialed in. <laughs> so uh, they um, it was interesting because like, you know, they're able to, you know, fly people around and they just got this incredible like production team and they're able to make these things happen and make them happen quickly. Uh, and it's uh, and also just kind of seeing where like, you know, I think part of the reason that people watch Dateline is that it's it's a little bit shocking. It's a little bit cheesy. Uh, and then to kind of see how those, you know, uh, how those interviewers are good at pulling those types of things out to tell that kind of story. And what I thought was really funny is that, uh, it ended up, um, showing like a year after the capsize and a lot, and a few of us went down to, uh, Miami where we, where we were supposed to end up and we're watching this thing and like, we were like live tweeting during it. And there are these people who were tweeting and were just like. I can't believe I watched this and no one died. <laughs> I was like, you people are animals. <laughs> I was like, I get it. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of, I mean, you'll watch that whole episode and you'll be like, that dude, Pat's dead. <laughs> oh, yeah. They, no, they really wanted you to think somebody was fucking dead. I know. Like, I think I got I got a text or a phone call from someone. <laughs> like, is Pat dead? <laughs> Uh, and, uh, yeah, and his, and like the, the interview with the, with Pat's mom, they were able to get a lot of emotion out of it. What's funny is they, my mom's a really emotional person, but they weren't getting the right kind of emotion out of her because <laughs> my mom like is just, uh, an incredible woman. Uh, and she was like, I know he's going to be fine. Like, I know these boys are going to look after each other. And she was like, she was just, uh, zen about it and up to the point where and like kind of on both of these these trips there were these you know my mom was very sensitive and so she ended up being cursed with <laughs> with the son who rode across the ocean the another son that joined the marines oh my god <laughs> and, and and so um 
you know, these kids that want to go out and do these, uh, you know, things that where, yeah, like there's this, there's an element of physical danger is, you know, both a part of it and it's part of the attraction. Um, but she was just so absolutely incredibly strong about it in, in the sense of like, kind of like, yeah, come back carrying your shield or on it. Right. Of course. It's <laughs> not, not something that, uh, you know, I guess knowing my mom, before I left for college, I would have expected, but uh, was a really cool thing to to see. And that's been another amazing thing. It's just how having this experience has been something that I've gotten to share with uh, with my with my family as well. And just how, you know, the conversations it brings up and just in the moments it's it's made. And I feel incredibly lucky uh, that, you know, our you know, that how, how the first trip worked out and then that our plan B for the second trip, that all the safety gear and all of the thought towards like, well, what if, you know, we, we knew what happened if what if happened and, uh, it did. And, you know, it certainly wasn't guaranteed, but we had a plan. Um, and I think, man, with Dateline, you know, they, they want it to, to look as, you know, they, they want to, they want to tell as dramatic story as possible and they're um, and they, they know how to do that. And it's uh, it's, it's always admirable to, 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 well, it's always fun to watch a, a well-oiled machine. And it's just interesting also to, like, I think we ended up at the, cause Adam lives up in Victoria and, you know, he, he had a kid and a pregnant wife at the time. So like, that's a huge, like dramatic thing that they're, which if you watched it, you saw. You oh know, yeah. Big deal. Uh, yeah, you saw Jefferson just sitting there, like you know, pretending to row as like a little boy, and it's like absolutely heart rendering just to to watch that and just even imagine a father dying. And then, I mean, there's just there's so much you can go into on that. But so there's that aspect of it, and these kind of um, you know, as they're getting these pictures to tell these stories, and then we're sitting there. Uh, they they've rented some rooms at the Empress Hotel where they're going to do these interviews, <laughs> and so. Wait, real quick. Is it the producers that are asking the questions for the most part, or is it that dude with the voice? Um, it is, uh, it's a little bit of both. And are they trying to make you, are they going out of their way to try to make you and your parents and stuff like that cry? Um, I don't think they're going out of their way to do that, but I think they are trying to ask some really tough questions. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's, you know, they, I wouldn't say it's like, it's not like it's a malicious thing at all. I just think it's like, they're, they're trying to like, they're, they're trying to draw out some, some real human emotions to, to tell a good story because they want to connect with people. Um, But it's just funny. Like, you know, you get up and you, you, you tell these really, uh, these dramatic stories. And I think what's, what's interesting is that all this happened really quickly so that story-wise it was all pretty raw for everybody. Um, in terms of, we were just still trying to figure out like process what happened ourselves uh, so I think over the years, as people tell these stories more and more, like a more, like a better, like a more understandable narrative comes out. Um, but uh, so you go and you tell these really emotional stories and then you're sitting there <laughs> down in the uh, one of the bars, at the Empress Hotel, throwing back gin and tonics, just like <laughs> laughing like this. <laughs> like this is just the most normal thing in the world. And you've just been upstairs, like pouring your heart out in these in these interviews. And then uh, <laughs> Downstairs, just chilling out. Fascinating. And when you're in the presence of somebody like that, that that guy with the voice, um, is he? Does he seem like a person, or does he seem like a character? I always wonder with these TV types because, I mean, he he definitely is a character on TV. But is is he like that when the camera's not on? No, um, okay. I think that I think there, there's moments where you kind of see a flash of that, uh, but for the most part, 
if they, I think if they, I think if they were like that all the time, they wouldn't be able to get the information that they want. Um, okay. Yeah. Just cause it would be like kind of too, too TV ish. And I think that would be a little bit uh, more of a, yeah, just harder to, harder to, to, to create the rapport with the person you're interviewing. Um, if you had that, um, if you, if it was too kind of like starry. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I want to conclude your rowing um, story before we move on to tiny boat sessions, just with the question of um, after your adventures on the sea, those long, crazy adventures, um, do, did, did you find what you were looking for out of those adventures? And number two, do you think grand accomplishments provide sustainable happiness? Mm, those are good questions. I like those. Uh, I think that, um, uh, I would say, I guess I'll answer that. I'm going to answer the second one, uh, first, and then, uh, I want you to repeat that, that first one Okay. with the, uh, like, do they provide like sustainable happiness? Like, um, no, I, I, I don't think that that at all, but I, I think that, I think it's, it's more how you use the experience afterwards. It's not a, it's not a static thing. The, you know, the relationship with the thing, um, if it's static, then it's, uh, then yeah, it's not going to be able to, to, to help you through a lot of things. I think it's healthy for, you know, you have these experience and to have, if I had the relationship with Rona across the ocean that I did when I got off the dock, you know, at this point, like that'd probably be indicative of some mental health issues. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but, uh, it has been something that's uh, evolved over, over time. And like, it's helped me think about story. And when I was writing the book like that changed my relationship with, uh, with what had gone on as well. Um, and, uh, but yeah, like, I, I think that, you know, cause I think there's, there's a lot of people that have done some really big, uh, cool, amazing things and they don't seem particularly happy. Uh, and that really bums me out. Um, you know, and some, and other people have like harder times. Sometimes some people have a harder time being happy. I think I'm generally a happy person, although like I am, I am given to melancholy every once in a while in a case of ennui from time to time. Um, but I think that one of the things that, uh, again, it's like, it's, a and the living with the story, um, and those accomplishments and those experiences, uh, it, it all depends on how you use them afterwards. Cause it's like going back to what my, what my dad said, it's like, you got it something that no one can take away from you. It's like, okay, well, so, so what do you do with it? <laughs> and, and that's, and that's different for each person. You know, some people that, you know, don't ever want to talk about it again. And there's other people that want to, you know, talk about it a whole bunch. And then maybe I'm somewhere uh, in between, you know, there's times where I feel like, you know, I, you know, I, I take people for these rowing tours and, you know, story is something that's uh, it's something that comes out. It's a tour. It's like a history tour of Seattle meets bird watching. Uh, you know, it's it's I, I love it. It's super fun. But I mean, being on a boat and telling sea stories is something that is that, you know, I think is is a lot of fun. But I, I don't like hearing myself speak. Uh, I like telling a good story and, con- and using it to connect with people. And so that's one of for me, uh, one of the best things about it about this has been being able to have a story that I can share, uh, that draws out stories and other people. And I think that's been one of the, just the, the grandest things about it is, um, yeah, I, I feel like most of the time when I've been in a, an experience where I, uh, have shared the story, like I get one as well, like, you know, <laughs> hearing about how you started, you know, <laughs> hearing about the Olympia water, 
it just, it's, it's a way to connect with people. And, um, I mean, maybe that's one of the most important like going back to like circling back to the whole idea of this, um, you know, why it's important to have these experiences as a, as a young, as a young person is, you know, this kind of this entry into the tribe, uh, through something like big and challenging, whatever that is to that person, uh, that it, one of these things that makes you a whole human in the sense that you have something that you can bring to the table and share, and then someone shares something with you. And then that leads to something else. And like those uh, can be really beautiful things. And the, the second part to that question was from those grand adventures, the grand rowing adventures that you've been on, um, did you find what you were looking for? Whatever it was, did you find what you were looking for and, and are you satiated moving forward? Oh, I think that, um, I mean, yes and yes and no. I think, uh, in terms of, the, I, I found some things that I was looking for and I think that those things have, you know, changed along the way. Um, but I think I, I was looking for a, a grand adventure and I, and I certainly got that, but you know, once you get that, you know, what do you, again, what do you do with it? Um, and I think figuring out, you know, what that is and, you know, I, some, you know, folks have asked me from time to time, well, would you row across the ocean again? Like, well, yeah, I would. I absolutely would. I, 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 I love rowing. <laughs> I was out rowing in the rain yesterday <laughs> and I was just said out loud. I was like, I love rowing. <laughs> I don't need to be rowing fast. I don't need to be like, I just, I just, I get a kick out of it. I think it's cool. <laughs> Seems like a silly thing to say, but uh, in terms of like, so yeah, I would absolutely go out there again. I enjoyed that experience of being at sea and being able to have like such discipline in order to make the thing work. And then just the incredible things you see out there, like the flying squid, the mermaids, the, you know, all those things. Um, I would absolutely do that again, but there's other types of things in my life that I, that I want to be able to do. And like, that's the thing about these these, these, uh, things, they, they take a lot of time. They take a lot of time. They take a lot of resources and I've done it twice. And I had two incredible experiences that were both very different with some incredible people. Um, and so am I satiated from those things? Like, no, (laughs) like I, there's other things I want to do too. Uh, and that's, um, and if I can use those to, to lead to the next thing, then, uh, more's the better. And in many ways it did because now your next grand adventure is tiny boat sessions and tiny boat sessions is something that I fell in love with as I consume more and more of the songs. And, um, I want to let you tell the audience about it because I think it's an absolutely wonderful thing. Are they just charming? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I just, I think everybody looks extra beautiful sitting in the back of a tiny boat and when they're singing a song, it's even more amazing. Uh, yeah. So I just had this, um, I, I'm trying to think like if I had, if it had been at any other moment in time, would it have had the same, uh, experience? Because like this is two, like well, there were several things were going on. It was like, it was uh, March of 2020 and it was, it was like the week that Seattle seemed to wake up and be like, holy shit, this is serious. Mm. And I was out for row with my, uh, housemate Rolando and, uh, cause we, so we had been very fortunate and my, my housemate, Carl, he had, uh, done three years of Peace Corps in China. So he was, 
he was paying attention and he's like, he's a, you know, he works in DC now. He's, you know, he was a lawyer. He became a lawyer and then he got a job uh, doing, you know, stuff with, uh, you know, he's just, he's a very well-informed person. <laughs> and he was the canary in the coal mine uh, for, you know, our little house here. And he was like, guys, this is serious. This is going to go down. We need to get food. And so we had already done like two food buys. And so we were kind of in this experience of like watching everybody else have this wake up that we'd probably had about three weeks before. So like, what are you doing that? It's like, well, you know, don't want to go <laughs> hang out in crowded places. So, and I, you know, what else was I going to do? I love to, love to go and go row. So it was a perfect evening to go out. Uh, it's a little bit cloudy, but still sunny. Um, and, uh, you know, March starting to finally get a little bit of evening light. And a row and I are out there rowing along and turn around. And there's this grizzled looking man in a tiny boat with a saxophone, just playing his heart out. <laughs> and it was this perfect moment and it brought me joy. <laughs> and right when we got off the boat, put everything up that evening, I'm, you know, doing the doom scrolling, which everybody seems to be pretty familiar with. And then there were these Italians that were just sitting there singing their hearts out into the street. <laughs> and I was like, I think we need more songs in tiny boats or at the very least, I need more songs in tiny boats. So I uh, start reaching out to my friends who can play, uh, play music. And my friend Sandy had recently got furloughed from her job and she plays ukulele. And so we're like, we'll come in the back of the boat. I was like, bring a ukulele. I like, I saw this guy. It was really cool. I kind of think this could be a thing. So she comes out and have a, you know, have a little breakfast burritos in the boat. And then she, it's, and it's an, another beautiful March day, like clear and, uh, calm water, you know, tides coming in. So it's like moving her past these buoys. Uh, and she's just playing these songs and it's just absolutely beautiful. So I was just like, I was convinced. I was like, this, this has to happen. And I start reaching out to all these people and it's like, it's the beginning of a pandemic. It's like, Hey, you know, the world's ending, but, uh, do you want to come play a song in a tiny boat? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and so like people weren't beating down the door really quickly. <laughs> so in a few days, like, and I had just started this job and I was like, I was totally like not doing any of that because the pandemic was going on. And then I had this really good idea. Um, and then on Friday, all these people started getting back to me uh, and including some of the people I was working with at the, the real estate place. <laughs> and I ended up getting 44 songs over the weekend from uh, uh, 11 different artists. And that was, and I just called it tiny boat session, just songs in tiny boats. Uh, so the last song that I got uh, was the hour the stay at home order was signed. And uh, started putting out a song a day. And then once I ran out of songs, I, um, at that point I'd kind of, I'd met a few, few more people and started getting some more folks and, uh, got a few more songs after that, got 63 that second time around. So for a total of 107 and in the middle of that, one of the guys from the first, uh, tiny boat session, uh, this guy named Eric, he lived on a sailboat and, um, one of his goals in life was to sail across the sea in this boat that he lived on. And uh, because of the pandemic, he decided he was going to move that up. Uh, and so as a thank you, I'd, I'd given him a, a copy of the book and uh, he had read that. And then I hadn't talked to him for weeks. 
So it was like maybe, oh, you know, June or so. And he reaches out to me and he's like, so uh, I was going to, I'm sailing across the sea and uh, my friend can only sail one direction, but I don't want to, I don't want to single hand alone. And I um, had a feeling he was going to ask me. And so he did. And I was like, I need to feel like I need to think about this for a day or so. Uh, but I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like I, <laughs> what else am I going to do? Um, at that point, uh, cause all my rows, like, like summer's n- normally the season that I take people out on, on these rowboat tours and that wasn't happening cause of COVID. Uh, so this opportunity to sail across the ocean, um, came and I, and I was doing, I was putting out these songs, um, uh, every day and, uh, I was kind of feeling like, you know, a little bit worn down from, you know, posting daily. Uh, and I was like, well, maybe this, maybe this is, has reached its end. I go to Hawaii, end up uh, on the boat, and I had brought in harmonica and I was, taught myself a few songs. And I was like, maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll shoot some tiny boat sessions. But then I'm out there and I'm playing the harmonica and that's good. But then Eric starts playing the guitar in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, this is just beautiful. I have to, <laughs> like, I got to do some more of this uh, when I get back. Like tiny boat session is, it's still a thing. I still got a lot of passion for it. So we had this beautiful sail across the sea. It was deliciously uneventful (laughs) i read like 11 books in 24 days we had like 24 hours of kind of rough weather which was you know really kind of nice to you know spice things up a bit but not too spicy yeah uh you know like a number three a taste of india um and (laughs) you know what i'm talking about (laughs) i know what you're talking about (laughs) yeah so uh, come back and it's like we sail like we've had this beautiful perfect sail and it's been our first sight of land is is Vancouver Island and we can see the mountains over 100 miles away so it's just perfectly clear I've been waiting my entire life to have an approach uh, to that part of the world uh, and it be perfectly clear um, and then as we sail into the Strait of Juan de Fuca like the smoke hits us and everything becomes dingy with this gross yellow smoke. Uh, and we come back and, you know, find out that like COVID case numbers are rising. And then when I set up a tiny boat session, it rains and I'm like, oh, maybe I got to hold off on this. Uh, so anyway, I had, I was going to go, I hadn't seen my parents in a year. So I decided I was going to road trip down uh, and do a quarantine thing and move into them for, move in with them, uh, for a little bit. And they live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And they have, uh, they live about a seven minute walk from the Rio Grande. So they got a COVID dog and I was, you know, walking the dog pretty frequently down to, down to the, the water. And I kept walking past this beautiful little patch, uh, in this oxbow. And I thought to myself, like after walking past it two dozen times, I was like, well, if I had a tiny boat, I could tiny boat session down here. And wouldn't that be cool to do it in the desert? <laughs> in the most unlikely of places. Yes. So called up my brother's old scoutmaster and uh he had this broken red canoe and I'd brought down a lot of my uh my woodworking tools cuz that had become one of my uh covid uh, hobbies and uh was able to fix the canoe up and just kind of put it out there on social media like at this point I I could say like hey this is what tiny boat session is it's songs and tiny boats and here's 107 of them you can look at like this is the thing. Uh, and all of these wonderful people reached out, ended up getting another 40 songs down in Albuquerque. Um, you know, there was a guy from Algeria, there was flamenco singers, there was country, there was jazz. Uh, 
and all just in this beautiful little tiny boat. And I had this really, I mean, all of them were incredible, but one of them, I uh, was trying to make it happen with this guy, uh, Aloy and um, like the weather, like the, this storm had moved in and there was a break in the, uh, there was a break in the weather. And I was like, you want to make it happen? And he, he went for it. And there's this beautiful, he's just got these, uh, all of his songs are on a little tiny oxbow in the middle of the desert with snow all around him. It's cool. just, it's surreal. Uh, and one of these ladies, uh, Stella, uh, she lived in, she had lived in Humboldt and she, uh, she was like this rock and roll cowgirl. She was so enthusiastic. Uh, and she was like, I know some rad singers in Humboldt. Like, are, are you, are you going to do this in any other places? You got to do it in Humboldt. I was like, okay, I'm doing it in Humboldt. And I thought about it. And I was like, like, I got to return this canoe, but like, I bet I could find tiny boats all the way up the coast. Like I know a lot of people, <laughs> I know a lot of people in the boating world. So mm-hmm. I made that my goal and I made my way up the coast. Just, uh, I'd reach out and try and like find a boat. And then once I had a boat, I'd reach out to try and make these tiny boat sessions happen. And I had this beautiful month long road trip back, uh, this whimsical <laughs> adventure of finding boats and then finding singers to sing in these little boats. Uh, and the very, uh, it was like the day after the first day of spring, I was made it to Humboldt. Uh, to uh, on the 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 Batuet Mad River next to um, Blue Lake, California, and the very last tiny boat session was uh, this guy finished, and he had he I'd been talking with him for at this point like like weeks now, and I had uh, and he, he he didn't show up, so I just decided to give him a call and see like oh hey maybe he forgot maybe he got busy I just you know want to touch base like I'm here at the moment. And he had been taking a nap and apparently he had this ridiculous night terror but about all of the horrible things that could happen on the river. And he was terrified <laughs> of the water. <laughs> and so the little spot on the river that we'd found it went up to my knees. So it's like a little pond next to the river. And at this point, there were uh, just these two guys, Turtle and Logan from the Rinky Ding String Band. And there was Ethan who was sitting there in this canoe. And he was just like, I'm, I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid of the water. And I was like, you don't have to do it, man. And he's like, no, I'm doing it. So he does it. And then he hands me his guitar and then he leaps in the water. And then Turtle and Logan, who are like one guy's dressed like a, like a 19th century miner. The other guy's like dressed like a cowboy. And they leap into the water and frolic around. <laughs> it's just like, that was my 120 tiny boat sessions of season three. And it was beautiful. <laughs> so one thing I want to ask you is there was a segment you did on Evening Magazine and you got emotional and it caught me off guard, not because the project isn't beautiful and isn't worthy of being emotional, but I just didn't expect it. I didn't expect the emotion. And I'm wondering, what is it about this project that moves you so? You know, I think, I mean, especially when they were, uh, when they were interviewing me, it was like, it was early on in the pandemic, but I mean, the, the emotion's still absolutely there, but I think it was like, it was kind of especially raw at that point, but I am someone who is easy, quick, who, like <laughs> I am quick to cry. Like I'm an emotional person. And that, at this point, like I've just decided that's a strength. Um, you know, yeah. like I feel things really hard and that is something that can be a challenge sometimes, but it's also something that's really good. And I think that, it's like along the lines of, you know, why I, uh, you know, why I write as well is to evoke those kinds of emotions. And I, 
it's, it was this, these little artistic vignettes of these, these artists in this little vessel. And we're all artists in our lives in these physical vessels. And they're sitting there and it's, it's the middle of the pandemic. And I can't think of a more fuck you to that situation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and playing a song in a tiny boat. Like if you're, if you're one of the, the many people out there that aren't, uh, you know, who's, you know, aren't the essential workers that are, that are making the, the society function from, you know, at the, at the level that, that it has, you know, cause it's like, yeah, looks looking at all the things that I was doing. It's like, well, it doesn't really feel very essential. And for all these artists, they're not able to like, they music's really important to people, but like people who make music want to make music in front of people. Like they're, they're drawn to that. They're, um, and what thing that really got me is that even early on, uh, when the pandemic really hadn't been going that, that on that long is that, just how tickled the they were to be able to play in front of someone um and how much that meant to them and like i was and i've just blown away and honored that they were you know taking the time out of, out of their day to come and uh and play on my boat i mean i was getting these you know these these one-on-one -on -one concerts and then meeting these incredible people in this time where i felt like you know because the boat there was you know between between us was um you know eight feet plus, uh, and it was outside and, you know, I was masked up, but we could still have this, you know, separate, but together type, uh, feeling in a very, uh, physical sense. And yeah, it was just, uh, I, I think that was one of the things that, that really, that really got to me. It just, and like all these people, they had all these other things that were going on in their lives and they were coming out, uh, to meet, you know, someone who, you know, wasn't, um, yeah, they're coming out to, to, to share their art, uh, in spite of all this, because there was just all of the things that add up to me having a tiny boat that's, you know, small, but, but just big enough to be together. All of that was adding up to being this, um, you know, something that, that was available, an outlet, that, an artistic outlet that was available. And all those things ended up making me feel, pretty emotional about it. Uh, but I can I understand. Yeah. I just think they're like, it, there's, I've been trying to, 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 to figure out how I would just like, how I would describe like why I find this so compelling. Uh, but there's something very stripped down and kind of silly about someone sitting in the back of a boat playing music. <laughs> And it's just uh, so like there's there's a charming sweetness to it, kind of no matter what the song is. And I think it's there's a certain joy. Like I, I take people out for these rowing tours and I've been amazed at uh, just having the opportunity to have all of these people in my boat that are some people are from around town, but some people from traveling from all over uh, is um, that when I do these uh, these tours, just like three hours in a boat, you know, rowing along and exchanging stories uh, can make people so happy. And so like, there's that aspect of it as well. And then like the combination of, of the music makes it this really neat exchange. And you know, I got these nice little pillows in the back of the boat and just seeing people like, like sit there and they look, they look cozy and they look comfortable. And when I, when I post these, uh, I, uh, you know, I'm kind of going through and I'm picking, 
like uh, the the cover photo for for each of these, and people are just have these great big grins on their face. And it's like a real like moment of happiness. And when I was doing this, like it's it's a lot of work to to gather these things together and then to make them come out in any with any kind of consistency. And the thing that I just told myself is I was like, if this makes just one person smile, then it's worth it. And I guess it's worth it even if it's just me. Because uh, I'm smiling right now. Um, and I think it makes a lot of other people smile too. And it's and that's exciting to to think that, you know, maybe kind of all my weird experiences have uh, you know, allowed me to stumble upon something that that's, that resonates with people, which I think is kind of one of the goals with all, with all art and creation. You know, you want to connect with someone. And this was, this has been a really good way to do that. I mean, it's, it's a magical experience, what you've created. I met this witch once on sixth Avenue of Tacoma and I was talking to this witch about witchy shit and, uh, I was like, you know, tell me about magic. How does magic work Work in the witch world? And she said, you know, if you want to do magic, because anybody can, here's how you start. Think of an idea that you're passionate about and pluck it out of thin air and create it. Doesn't matter what it is. That's magic. That's, you know, that in and of itself is magic. And she said, think about it. It's something that you've thought of that you like and you, you pluck it out of thin air and make happen. Um, and if you start to do things like that, then you'll notice a lot more magic starts to appear in your life. You know, it's some real deep shit from this witch. And um, I never saw her again. She also, by the way, said to always pay attention to what ravens are doing. So if you see a raven, pay attention to what it's doing. Um, I never forgot that either, but I can't apply it to this story. Uh, so I think that in your, in, the, in your case, as you describe, you know, this whole thing, you have the musician on one end and they're pouring their heart and soul into their craft. And then you have on your end, this tiny boat concert and you've plucked that out of thin air. I mean, it's a magical experience. I do want to ask you though, everybody that comes on your show is beautiful and the performance is wonderful. And I would never ask you to name names, but I, I do, I do wonder, you know, I I'm obsessed with the idea of the, of the it factor, you know, that thing that you can't quite put a finger on that zhuzh that just some people have. And do you notice that ever? Do some? Do you notice, man? Some that that musician just has zhuzh. That's something, something extra. I've never heard. Uh, I think I've heard only heard zhuzh. Uh, I haven't heard that that much before, but I really like that. Zhuzh, <laughs> zhuzh. Like, yeah, I, I don't know what that is, but I I want more of it. <laughs> I don't either. It's a feeling more than it is a description. You can't describe it. It's zhuzh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that is great. I love that word. Um, you know, I think that, again, I think this is one of the, uh, things that I, that I like about the boat is that it seems to level the playing field in a sense. Um, and so that there is, uh, and maybe it's because like, it's hard to separate them because like, I'm so, uh, close to the filming and it's, it is in this one little thing and it's in a beautiful spot. Um, and I think like one thing that I notice is sometimes I'm so focused on, like I got an oar and one or a paddle in one hand and then I got the, the camera in the other and I'm balancing all these things at once that sometimes I got to like bring myself back in and be like, Hey, like actually watch what's going on before you. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so I will, you know, I'll go back and I'll look at these and I'll just be, uh, sometimes realize like, oh, wow, like I was so focused with all these things that were going on around to try and like make sure that that, 
that the image stays stays centered that I was like, oh, wow, this is just really way more beautiful than than, than I thought it would be. But I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I've had like a, a wide variety of, of musicians in there. And I think that, you know, there's uh, some folks that are just playing for for love. And then there's some folks that are playing uh, because they can, you know, they can make a living on it. Um, and I think that, I mean, the, the passion is there for everybody, but I think with the people that are making uh, a living on it, you can, you can just tell that because it's their, their job, they, they've, they've walked more miles in it. They've, you know, they're, they're closer to their 10,000 hours or, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, kind of across the board, the, the passion, uh, has been, I mean, there's, there's not one person that I'd say like really stands out as like, Oh, that's it. <laughs> um, and I've often thought about like, I, I, and this is a weird thing to admit. Um, but like, I don't like crowds or loud noises. So a natural place for me is not at a concert, uh, or a sports stadium. Um, I'm not comfortable, uh, in those places, um, and so, and I've never really thought of myself, like I always liked music, but music's been something that's kind of like on in the background. Um, but the idea of like sitting down and, and going to concerts, like that's been something that's been, you know, something because of, you know, again, crowds and loud noises that I, I don't find myself going to, I like when I find myself in, in an intimate space, uh, with music before, like I've always really loved those settings so much. Um, but for the most part, like the way that a lot of people consume the music, um, I guess what I'm going to like this is that I never would have thought of myself as like any kind of, you know, A&R person for <laughs> like looking for, uh, looking for, for musicians. Um, and the other thing is that I, I mean, I, it's important to me that this is just absolutely as inclusive, as inclusive as I know how to make it, you know, cause I think everybody is like, is that like, the question is like when people say like how, um, you know, like, what are you looking for? It's like, do you have a song in your heart that you want to play in a tiny boat? Like, that's the song I want to hear, whatever the hell it is. Like, if that is really what is in your heart, then that is what I want to capture. And it can be whatever. Um, but like, that's what I want, uh, people to, to bring to this situation. And, uh, that's kind of led me to, um, a lot of interesting people. And I think, you know, as I continue it, uh, should lead me to, to more. Okay, Jordan, I've taken up a lot of your time today, certainly more than I deserve. And so I'll leave you the floor to say whatever you would like to my audience. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what's for me is like, I've talked about my adventures and, uh, and tiny boat session, but I mean, my, the main thing, the main artistic thing that I'm trying to do is, uh, um, be a writer a novelist. I got these, uh, I got 1400 pages of, <laughs> of a story. And I don't know if that's going to be a short story. If I don't know if it's going to be, you know, several stories, like I think it's, I think it is several. Uh, and that's the, as a, it, that's been one of the frustrating things about tiny boat session is that I love them so much. And it just kind of came because of the, the moment, uh, you know, the, the zeitgeist of, of my life, at least with all the things that added up to that. Uh, but for the last four years, I've been working on these books and I'm really, really passionate about them. They're historical romance. And uh, that's where I've been, you know, focusing my creative energy. So over the next uh, few years, I'm looking to be getting those things out and I'm, I'm excited about it. It's, uh, 
It's an adventure romance with themes of race and sexuality that revolves around the murder of a Philippine-American war vet uh, in the spring of 1926 and the subsequent framing of his adopted Filipino son, the events of which are precipitated by a chance encounter between a rum runner and a Baptist preacher's daughter. And so I've had this idea for a long time now. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm just really excited to to work on that. And one of the things I'll be doing this uh, spring is heading down to New Orleans because uh, i got some characters that are from there. Uh, spend some time and bring my boat so I can get in the, uh, the waters around there, do some exploring, and um, also find some tiny boat sessions down there. And that's kind of where I'm at is trying to figure out how to balance these two uh, creative energies that I got going on right now. And also, you know, coming back to Seattle and, uh, you know, making, uh, making some money rowing people around and, um, trying to make it all work, which, I mean, I think you're right in the middle of that as well. And it's, uh, but when you're passionate about it, it's, it's a lot more fun and you kind of can't not do it. You know, I used to pray for the opportunity to be in the fight for my dreams. I, I never thought that it was, it was in my rights to ask for my dreams to be given for me. So as long as I'm fighting for it, shit, you know, I wake up every day. All right. You know what I'm saying? But, um, I want to, I want to end And may I say you're a wonderful writer and you must come back when that book's about to come out and whenever you want as well. I've, I've loved having you today, but, um, I really do recommend any product that you've written. Um, I want to, I want to end the show just by, I want to give you one compliment, uh, one of the aspects of this book that really touched me deeply was uh, you named the boat that you rode from New York to England, the James Robert Hansen. I want to make sure I get that correct. Yeah, yeah, you got it. And that's the name of your late father who passed away of asthma at when you were three years old. And, um, you know, I just want to make sure that it said you crossed oceans in my mind to immortalize your dad. And you succeeded in doing that. And I, I, I don't think there's anything that a dad could possibly ask for more. I mean, uh, you crossed oceans to give that gift. And that that had a personal impact on me that I'll never forget. That means a lot to me to hear. I, uh, yeah, I, I think that's was a big, I mean, that's a big reason why I, you know, that's the thing is like, I didn't, I didn't start out to row across the ocean to do that. That's something that evolved from it. And then all of these other things came, came with that. And I, the way I would describe this, that what the row, so when you're like, everybody has a tragedy in their life. No one's getting out of human out of being a human without having some kind of tragedy. And I feel like I've, I've really had very little, but I have had, uh, I've had, have had, you know, one at least, and I'm sure I will have others. Uh, but when something tragic happens to you as a kid, uh, you build a child sized box to keep that tragedy and that grief and that trauma in. But as you become an adult, that box no longer fits because you have become a far more complex human and you got to build something different to keep it in. And that's what that trip became for me. Uh, what it evolved into was building uh, a box to keep that grief in uh, and that trauma and what I've learned from that as an adult and writing the book really helped bring that together as well. And there's an interesting postscript on that too, is that uh, so the James Robert Hansen has been after <laughs> Guinness world record and getting rescued from the, uh, 
you know, <laughs> almost in the Bermuda Triangle, 25 miles outside of it. Oh, damn. That would yeah. be cooler. Yeah. Well, so that was pretty crazy, too. So, but, it, you know, it got damaged, but we were able to recover it. And uh, that's a whole that's a whole other story I can, <laughs> can get into. Uh, but basically, it's uh, been down, you know, kept outside at Foss Seaport Waterway Museum. And they've been great at, like, giving it a home. Um, and it's been able to, you know, have a an extended life as uh, as a story piece down there, but they've kind of, you know, they've changed directions and now I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. And uh, it's a very real possibility that it's next, um, that it's next voyage is to, is going to be a voyage and letting, letting go of that too. Um, you know, it's just, it's it knowing the possible damage when it hit the side of the tugboat, when we were pulling it out, it's like, I wouldn't feel comfortable selling it to an aspiring ocean rower. Um, I think it could be fixed up and be good for some coastal things, but uh, there's just certainly a, it's looking for another home. And I don't really know if it has any other one besides that, but even that in and of itself, I've, I've accepted that that is an exercise in letting go. And that's not a bad thing either. And uh, those stories are still, going to be there. And that was the show. Thank you so much to Jordan Hansen for coming on the program. Be sure to check out Tiny Boat Session, Jordan's latest project, Jordan's book, Rowing into the Sun, Four Young Men Crossing the North Atlantic, and also Jordan's rowing tour of Seattle on Airbnb called Rowing Urban Waterways. It's the best damn tour of Seattle in the world, I'm telling you. All links to where you can find out about Jordan, his Dateline special, his book, his website, social media, all of that, that's all located in the show's description and social media post regarding this episode. Have a good night. Thanks for listening. My name is Matthew. This is West Coast Radio from Seattle. I go row the boat ashore.